Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Florida Surgeon General comes under fire for not masking up. Voters head to the polls for a special congressional election in South Florida, and the progressive constitutional amendment pipeline may be drying up. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns and Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. But first... Gentlemen, you got some numbers today. How about you, John? Yeah, Zach, I'm here with a uh, number 51 this week. 51 is mine. All right. Antonio? I got 58,318. And I'm right in the middle with 5,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, amid a pandemic that has now claimed nearly 59,000 lives in Florida, the state's top health official has become a lightning rod for controversy because of his approach to COVID-19 public health measures. Surgeon General Joseph Ladapa was criticized recently for downplaying the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccine, and now he's getting slammed again for refusing to wear a mask when meeting with State Senator Tina Polsky, who told Ladapa that she has a serious health condition and later revealed um, that she has breast cancer. Now Democrats are saying the Senate shouldn't confirm Ladapo as Surgeon General, and even the Republican Senate president is criticizing his mask position. John, the narrative here is that the state's top health officer isn't really taking uh, public health very seriously. Is that fair? Well, I I think that criticism is very fair. The uh, state's Surgeon General, of course, is the state's top health officer. And wouldn't you think that modeling behavior you expect your citizens to follow, that that would be a, a very simple, basic part of the job? Uh, but, you know, in this case, Ladapo couldn't even meet with a, a recent cancer patient, Senator Polsky, for a few minutes in her office while wearing a mask. And uh, his excuse, he can't communicate clearly with when he's wearing a mask. <laughs> OK, well, Dr. Ladapo, welcome to the world that all of us on the planet have been working in for almost two years now. And uh, this from someone who received his uh, MD and his PhD from Harvard University. But, um, you know, what what Ladapo is really schooled in is being an agitator for that anti-vaccine, anti-mask, anti-mitigation crowd that, uh, you know, really gained voice under former President Trump. Uh, Remember, in in June, Ladapo co-authored an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal titled, Are COVID Vaccines Riskier Than Advertised? which uh, basically questioned the benefits of immunizing children, young adults, and people who already had COVID-19. Ladapo said that getting vaccinated is a personal choice. Uh, Okay, that's obviously true. But he also last week appeared with Governor DeSantis when the governor called for a special session to ban vaccine mandates uh, that are expected from the Biden administration for larger businesses. He, but Ladapo was just freestyling vaccine opinions that many people um, said basically spread misinformation that would contribute to whatever vaccine hesitancy there is out there. Uh, he, he did things like, you know, he questioned the rate of protection you get from a vaccine, basically saying it was as much as almost half of what the centers for disease control say it really is. And uh, he urged people to, uh, quote, stick to their intuition and sensibilities, which, you know, from my listening, that that just fans suspicions about the vaccines that shouldn't be there and uh, fuels the, the beliefs of an anti-vaccine crowd. And uh, again, this is coming from the state's top health officer. But um, Ladapo is really more of a political appointment by 
you know, what we have is an always politicking governor, Ron DeSantis. Uh, he's, he's eager to appeal to that far right base. And like DeSantis, he mixes and matches quasi science with data on the effectiveness of masking and vaccines. And he finds some studies that cast some level of doubt. And uh, this, of course, is in a state where Florida's vaccination rate is ranked 21st among all 50 states with 59 percent of Floridians fully vaccinated right now. But um, Ladapo is here to do what his boss wants. And he's uh, he was featured in a video last year deleted by social media platforms because of his COVID-19 misinformation. He was part of this lab coat wearing uh, organization called America's Frontline Doctors uh, when he appeared on the steps of the United States Supreme Court last year uh, as they were promoting President Trump's then touted uh, hydroxychloroquine as a as a cure for the virus and uh, he was dismissing science that cast doubt on the on that compound but uh, Trump and his son Donald Jr they shared clips from that event before it was taken down and um, you know it kind of went viral living on among conspiracy groups that are dedicated to anti-vaccine and QAnon content so when you listen to Florida's top doctor well you might want to get a second opinion. Antonio, Tina Polsky is from your part of the state. How has this story played out for her? Well, Zach, unfortunately, this story took an even uglier turn this week because in today's political atmosphere, unfortunately, uh, discourse ultimately becomes a race to the bottom. And that was the case in regards to Senator Polsky. And despite the outpouring of support, including from Senate President Wilton Simpson, uh, Polsky says she is getting calls from people saying that she hope, they hope she dies. And here's what she told Palm Beach Post reporter Wendy Rhodes, uh, quote, they left horrible messages for me and requested my death, among other things, stuff like you should die of your cancer. If you're so sick, you shouldn't be out in public. Masks don't work. You liberal piece of fill in the blank, quote unquote. So bear in mind, whatever your political leanings, this is a person who is undergoing medical treatment in a life altering battle with cancer. Yeah, because they disagree with her. There are people who take license to say the most vile statements simply because they believe they have the right to do so. Fortunately, though, I, I think there seems to be the possibility for a silver lining in all of this. Polsky was diagnosed more than a month ago and, in fact, underwent surgery on September 27th. A week later, as we all know, Governor Ron DeSantis revealed his wife, First Lady Casey DeSantis, had also been diagnosed with breast cancer. Polsky then reached out to the first lady in hopes of meeting with Casey DeSantis, and, and it looks like a meeting may be upcoming. Uh, Polsky's hoping for bipartisan support, you know, to bring awareness to breast cancer issues. And if this meeting were to happen with Casey DeSantis and they could, you know, work by in a bipartisan fashion, it would be a welcome break from all the polarization and hateful talk and fingers crossed, you know, perhaps save lives in the process. So some ugliness there for Polsky, but maybe uh, some bipartisan efforts to, to raise awareness, which would um, be a pretty positive outcome from all of this. Well, there aren't too many high profile races on the ballot in Florida during this off election season, but voters in portions of Broward and Palm Beach counties will be picking a new member of Congress in a special election to fill a district that was represented by Alcee Hastings until his death earlier this year. There are 11 Democrats and two Republicans running in the primary, which will wrap up next week. But the district is overwhelmingly Democratic, and a Democrat is almost certain to retain the seat. 
That means the district doesn't affect the balance of power in Congress, which is one of the reason the race hasn't received all that much attention. Antonio, what can we learn from this race? Does it say anything about the the Democratic Party or the current political moment? Yeah, it says at least a handful of things. Uh, First, we have been talking in past podcasts about the lack of Democratic uh, Party bench strength across the state. Well, there is plenty of bench strength in the District 20. There are 11 Democrats seeking the post, including state lawmakers and county commissioners. Second, it also shows that a major source of strength in the party in Florida is in many ways in in its black citizenry and black candidates. We are seeing that in the District 20 contest, and we expect to see it in November of next year if Congressman Val Demings of Orlando is, as everybody expects, will be the, the top Democrat on the ballot as she challenges U.S. Senator Marco Rubio in what will be one of, if not the marquee, U.S. Senate race next year. Now, we've talked a lot about how Democrats need to court more Hispanics and how they count on suburban women voters, but the District 20 race will show that without solid, complete engagement with the Black electorate, 2022 could end up being deja vu all over again for Florida Democrats in the midterm election. Uh, Third, this is an important seat. As you mentioned, the Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives has a really slim majority, so they could use this extra vote. Moreover, as we watch the battles taking place within the Democratic caucus in Washington, specifically between centrists and progressives, it matters who wins the seat. For example, if the winner is a more business-friendly Democrat like Broward County Commissioner Dale Holness or a moderate like Holness's uh, uh, fellow commissioner, uh, Barbara Sharif, the more moderate faction in D.C. will gain an important vote. If the winner is a progressive firebrand like State Representative Omari Hardy, then the more leftist wing of the party will get leverage. So it's an important election for Democrats on Capitol Hill as well. But you know what? No matter who wins this, this will be one of those changing of the guard moments. Nancy Hastings served for almost three decades. You know, he was elected at a time when South Florida congressmen like Dante Fasale and Claude Pepper before him were lifelong politicians. It's a different day. Across Florida, changeover appears to be the norm of the day in the Florida congressional delegation. 2020, we saw the retirements of Republicans Francis Rooney and Ted Yoho, both of who just served a few terms. We saw the GOP also flip two seats, including House House District 27 in Miami and and Collier Counties. I'm sorry, House District 26 in Miami-Dade and Collier Counties. Uh, that That district has been held by five different people in the past decade. And whoever wins the Congressional District 20 special election in January, maybe a short time or two, that person will have to run to defend the seat a year from now. But why get ahead of ourselves, you know, guys? You know, that first, someone needs to fill the seat. And since, as you said, Zach, it is a solid Democratic district, that someone will likely be the winner of the November 2nd primary. All right. So some uh, interesting things to watch in that special election. Well, it's not always easy being a liberal in Florida, a state that has been under Republican control for more than two decades now. Democrats don't have much power, but left-leaning groups have been remarkably successful, really, in one arena of politics, which is passing constitutional amendments. Each of the last four election cycles has seen a progressive policy priority become law through the constitutional amendment process, from legalizing marijuana, uh, medical marijuana, to raising the minimum wage and restoring felons' voting rights. And there was also uh, an amendment that... uh, uh, kind of the legislature, um, you know, sidelined a little bit that was uh, aimed at um, the, aimed at protecting uh, land and, and water conservation. 
But that streak may come to an end in 2022. Progressive activists say they've struggled to raise money for petition drives, blaming a $3,000 cap on contribution efforts uh, that was put in place by the legislature and later overturned. Efforts to expand voting rights and Medicaid coverage are being targeted at 2024 instead of 2022 to allow more time to raise money. It's possible that the only amendments that could make the ballot next year through petition drives are efforts funded by gambling companies to expand gambling in Florida. Whatever the pros and cons of proposals like that, they're not grassroots-driven ideas, but more about special interests making money in the state. John, progressives have had a good run through the amendment process. Do you think 2022 is just an off year, or could this kind of signal some difficulties ahead for their efforts? Well, it has gotten harder to get constitutional amendments on the ballot for voters, and uh, groups that push ideas forward may be seeing that the latest effort, that that $3,000 cap you referred to, it became just a little too daunting uh, to, to get any uh, signature gathering efforts to get a ballot on the uh, to get an amendment on the ballot uh, together. Um, you know, it, it took time and money and uh, it may be a contributor to the lack of initiatives this, this go around. Um, you know, if, if that $3,000 cap is uh, is upheld uh, eventually in, in legal fights in court, uh, you, you know, you're going to see um, that's going to have a dramatic impact on uh, the future of ballot initiatives. And even if it is thrown out by the court uh, permanently, uh, watch for the Republican-led legislature to try to bring it back in some fashion or enact some other restriction aimed at making it more difficult to uh, get something before voters. Um, you know, kind of interestingly, Zach, you pointed out in a story you recently did on this subject for our Gannett papers uh, that one of the few citizens initiatives moving forward right now is it's tied to online gambling and uh, it's financed by the by the citizens at the uh, Las Vegas Sands Casino. So uh, <laughs> I, I I guess that the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, was right when it ruled that corporations are citizens too. Not really something put forward by the little guy there. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't seem like it. It's a uh, it's major gambling interests that want to get that initiative on. But um, we have had a remarkable string of ballot measures which advanced subjects that had all been rejected by the, the legislature. Uh, you wonder now, are ideas drying up? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Medicaid expansion remains a subject that you would think a number of Floridians and interest groups might get behind, especially you know during this period of a pandemic. But the, uh, the effort that was uh, most recently backed by a lot of service and healthcare industry unions uh, didn't think it had the time or money to get the signatures needed. You, you you need pretty close to 1 million signatures to get a measure before the voters on the ballot. So uh, th that's a big task. And um, similarly, there was a, an affordable housing proposal that has gotten scrapped because of some assurances from the legislature that affordable housing money collected by the state through taxes will, will actually be spent on providing affordable housing, which is something that uh, the legislature often directs that money to other uh, other purposes. And that, that's been a, a bone of contention between the, the legislature and housing advocates. But um, Democrats, the, this uh, 2022 would probably welcome some vote driving ballot measures, sort of like the, uh, the minimum wage measure that uh, drew such appeal during last year's presidential contest. 
Um, you know, there's going to be a big governor's race and a U.S. Senate contest. And uh, the incumbents, uh, two Republicans, Governor DeSantis and Republican Senator Marco Rubio, they're facing opposition from underdog Democrats. So having a ballot measure to also attract maybe working class and maybe minority voters to the polls, that could be a good thing for Democrats. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, you know, Republicans have control of state government in Florida, and because they have that control, they have hated citizens' amendments, which they see as an end run around their directing of state policy. And it also may be one of the last avenues to uh, to to stop complete Republican domination of the state that has been, you know, so far, it's one of the last things that's not closed to Democrats uh, now that the Florida Supreme Court is composed solely of Republican appointed justices. And of course, the Supreme Court does get to review ballot amendments for their uh, constitutionality. So uh, the court has been known to kick some off, including most recently uh, a couple of uh, marijuana initiatives. So um, Republicans uh, leaders, uh, they've acknowledged that it would be very unlikely that a successful ballot measure could be put before voters that does away with the citizens ability to get something on the ballot. But the um, Republican legislature has made it more and more difficult to get measures there. So, uh, you know, will there be more ideas in the future? Probably. But I think that this could very well be the beginning of the end. Maybe uh, we're seeing something, uh, especially with further tightening of the funding or signature raising process. Uh, if that emerges from the legislature, that could be the, the final uh, you know, nail in the coffin for uh, citizens initiatives. I'm glad you mentioned the, the state Supreme Court, John, because uh, I was also told by people that that uh, is probably having a chilling effect on some of these amendments. You know, you have a much more conservative Supreme Court now because uh, Governor DeSantis has been able to replace some liberal leaning judge with judges with conservative leaning judges. Um, and that court has knocked some amendments off the ballot um, by saying that uh, some of the um, ballot summary uh, language was misleading. And so it could be dejecting for progressives and some of these big uh, liberal leaning donors uh, to, to say, you know, if if they're going to go through all these hoops just to get this uh, these amendments uh, knocked off the ballot at the end um, by the court. So, you know, that that also could be having a big influence on some of this. But this is an important thing to, to watch. This has been a, a big counter narrative to what has been the dominant narrative, which is that the uh, in Florida politics, which is that the, the Florida is is increasingly trending more and more red uh, with Trump winning by a larger margin in 2020 than he did in 2016, um, you know, with uh, the governor's mansion controlled by Republicans for a long, long time, with the legislature controlled by Republicans, the state, um, you know, has has looked less like a purple state and more like a light red state. Um, and this amendment process with progressives getting their policy ideas approved uh, kind of through the back door has, has been a counter narrative to that, but it looks like some of the screws are tightening on that. And um, we'll have to see if this is just a blip or a long-term trend. But we'll move on to our numbers here. Uh, Antonio, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, I have 58,318. And gentlemen, that is a number of names on the Vietnam War Memorial Wall in uh, Washington, D.C. The number represents the total number of American military servicemen and women who died in that more than a decade long conflict. Now, I chose that number because in the past week, the number of Floridians who have died from COVID-19 has surpassed 58,600. That means that in the past 570 days or so, more people have died in Florida from COVID than the number of Americans who died in 10,000 days of war in Vietnam. 
Now, how all of this will play out in the political arena is impossible to guess. Will voters decide this shocking death toll was the price to pay to preserve freedom and keep the economy open? Or will they conclude that better pandemic and public health management like mask mandates could have saved lives and kept the economy open just the same? Well, you know, that's what the elections are for. But it's still stunning to think that in the past 19 months, Florida has been a more deadly place than the Southeast Asian jungle loaded up with Viet Cong. Yeah, that's a pretty remarkable and, and sobering number. Uh, John, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, Zach, uh, th- th- this being Halloween week, I'm here with a Halloween story, except uh, keeping with my number. It goes back 51 years. Uh, you see, 51 years ago on Halloween weekend, October 30th, 1970, rock singer Jim Morrison was sentenced in Miami to six months in jail for exposing himself and using profanity during a concert several months earlier at Miami's uh, Dinner Key Auditorium. Uh, of course, for Doors fans and rock fans in general, this is a momentous moment, the kind of a, a, a milepost in rock history and what sadly amounted to a, a point in Morrison's downhill slide that, that ended in his death in summer 1971 in Paris. Uh, a heart attack uh, probably brought on by, well, a few years of living the rock star life. But um, after his sentencing in Miami, Morrison remained free on appeal, and he continued for the remaining months of his life to challenge the, the, the facts of his conviction, saying he wasn't profane and he disputed the exposure charge. But it wasn't until years later, on the day after what would have been his 67th birthday in December 2010, that he got some important supporters to endorse his claim of innocence. That's when Florida Governor Charlie Crist and the cabinet They were sitting as the state clemency board, and they unanimously signed a complete posthumous pardon for Morrison, who, of course, was sort of a Florida man, born in Melbourne and Brevard County, and he once attended St. Petersburg Junior College and Florida State University. His uh, mugshot taken by the Tallahassee Police Department in 1963 for disturbing the peace is kind of a collector's item. So uh, so as we get ready for Halloween, we can remember Morrison, the the, the Lizard King and Mr. Mojo Rising. He, he, he's gone. Uh, as, as the door is saying, he, he's taken a journey to the end of the night. Yet Charlie Crist is still around. And uh, as we all know, he's running for governor again as a Democrat. You know, maybe it's best to remember this Halloween, another thing that Morrison once sang, the future's uncertain and the end is always near. <laughs> well done, John. That, that number really uh, lit my fire. Good, good job. <laughs> <clears throat> my number is 5,000. That's how much money Governor uh, DeSantis wants to give police officers as a signing bonus if they relocate to Florida. The bonus money drew attention this week when DeSantis brought up his plan during a Fox News segment where the host was discussing vaccine mandates. The Fox host talked about Chicago police officers rebelling against a vaccine mandate, which prompted DeSantis to bring up his police recruitment plan and encourage officers who think they aren't being treated well to come to Florida. That prompted headlines that DeSantis was trying to recruit unvaccinated officers to Florida, something DeSantis denied during a press conference in Venice on Monday. The governor pointed out that the bonus is for any new Florida officer, regardless of vaccination status. And it's also true that DeSantis never mentioned the issue of officers facing vaccine mandates in other states when he rolled out his police recruitment plan last month, instead pitching it as an effort to support officers who felt unappreciated after the George Floyd demonstrations. 
Yet the governor's comments during the Fox News segment were responding directly to the issue of vaccine mandates for police officers. So whatever his original intention for the police recruitment program, he now seems to be tying it to this vaccine issue. DeSantis repeatedly has flirted with the anti-vaccination crowd and has ramped up that rhetoric amid the heightened debate over vaccine mandates. So expect to see more controversies like this going forward. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.